Right. Where are you, by the way? I forgot to ask. I'm in Paris. Okay. Because you, you studied in the UK, and then your bio says between Tuscany and Paris. Yeah. So that's yeah. where you were. Because I landed in Paris for a residency at the Cité des Arts, which is this mind-blowing place where you find like 300 studios for artists, curators, musicians, I mean, all sorts of disciplines within the arts, not just visual arts. It's like being on Erasmus in an artistic city, but you're a bit older, so you're not so stupid, thankfully, (laughs) and you make the most, well, not always, of course, but yeah, we'd like to think we're older and wiser, yeah. but no, <laughs> we're just not broke. <laughs> I started that residency in January 2019, supposedly to finish my PhD. And then I got another commission. So I focused mainly on that and didn't finish the PhD there. But it was kind of helpful to be there because I had to consult artworks that were in Parisian museums collections. And then I fell in love with the city, as you do. I mean, it's such a cliche. I decided that I was going to be based in Paris. I decided already in 2016 that I'm a European and I cannot live in a place that leaves Europe. So I did my own Brexit. And and so I, yeah, I finished my relationship with the UK, although I have to say that it was really my land of opportunity and I'm really grateful for everything that could happen in the UK, both study and work-wise, but it was over. Fair enough. Speaking of that, like I often wonder about like how people sort of got created. So, like, so you, where were you born and raised, and where, what did your parents do, and like how did they influence sort of where you are in your career? Okay. <laughs> Probably I am nowhere where they would love me to be in the sense that I'm born and raised in Renaissance Tuscany in a very kind of bourgeois milieu. And I've grown up surrounded by ancient art and art history books, but none of them was coming from my family in the sense that for my mom, in Italian, we say, take art and move it apart as a joke like so for my mom I'm too boring and intellectual and she's much more pragmatic let's say so we have this weird love and hate relationship for which for example I use her name as my alter ego so when I write more fictional and experimental stuff I'm signing them with my mom's second name and surname that she hates because it's Candida Desideri, which if you translate into English is like candid wishes, but Candida is also the vaginal infection. Um, So that's why she hates it. (laughs) And I love it because she hates it. Uh, And so I created this sort of imaginary character, what my mom would be like had she been an intellectual artist and so I'm signing all the more experimental stuff with his name it's a sort of irreverent homage to her 
Yeah, I noticed that there was this whole alter ego that you came up with. I have always wanted to do an alter ego. Like, I mean, that sounds like so much fun. Like, you can just go away for the weekend and be like, today, I'm going to make work under my alter ego. It's, yeah, I mean, it sounds a bit pretentious, I know. No, if you had said nom de plume, that would have been pretentious, <laughs> but alter ego uh, You fun. know, uh, it's not really a matter of feeling like Fernando Pessoa or... It's a mixture between coward and safe place where you let go yourself. I mean, the self that society has imposed you to be in a way. And then you just um, can be as wild as you like and enjoy and have fun. Because I have love and hate relationship also with writing in the sense that I'm a writer and I love writing when it's done. I actually love the process, the research, the digression, but I am a procrastinator, so digression can become quite um, dangerous and long. And then it gets to the point of when, you know, writing is a commission, so it's a compulsory, you are expected to use a certain rigorous, sophisticated language. Sometimes the topic that they commissioned to you is not that exciting. So it becomes a little bit of a nightmare for a week or two nearer the deadline. And then because I'm a total rebel, I really don't like rules. And I always try to escape the commission somehow. <laughs> so I always return something that's not quite exactly what they asked me to do. But I had fun and, you know, I worked my arse off, as the French would say. So at the end of the day, they like it. But yeah, it's not necessarily what I was supposed to do. Well, I mean, do those people really ever want like exactly what they say or ask for? Because I mean, if, if they wanted something exactly like what they asked for, they could have just done it themselves. I mean, they, they hire people or, or request people to do these writings or commissions for them because they want something sort of based in this idea, but they want to see how somebody else takes on that perspective. Yeah, that's true. The problem is then that you receive a commission and then you start to psychoanalyze it and you start to put yourself in the mind of the person that commissioned you, trying to speculate on what possibly this person would want you to write. It's like, you know, it's a huge Pandora's box of paranoias. The best is probably just to read the pitch and start writing straight after. It's hard. I, I mean, I hate doing artistic commissions as well for the same kind of reason. Like, I find that most people that come to me and say, like, hey, could you do this piece? They already have something in their mind and they just think I'm a tool to get what they want instead of actually, like, just letting me be creative kind of thing. I've generally weighed away from doing a lot of commission works in my career. Or maybe just nobody likes my work enough to commission it. I'm not sure. But either way. I'm, I'm sure it's not true. Oh, no. That's, I'm, I'm joking. I have done commissions and I've been asked to do commissions. But it's just, it's, it's one of those things like once you put it out in the world that you don't like doing them, miraculously, they don't come to you anymore. Yeah. But sometimes they can be a relief in the sense that, you know, in front of the white page or the white wall, because I'm also a curator, so you know, these are the two main 
nightmares. <laughs> they could be the opportunities, but they could also be the nightmares. Sometimes a good commission can save you from just wasting so much time thinking the very basic what. Then you have to think about how and then the when. It's like, and why? All right. So how did you get from this bourgeois place in Tuscany to being an academic in the photo text world? Mm -hmm. So first of all, I wanted to escape that environment. I mean, my hometown, Luca, is amazing and beautiful. The people are, at the time when I was 18, it's not just the most exciting place to, to be for, you know, for that age. You want to be in London, New York, Berlin, Paris, Barcelona, wherever, but not necessarily in a small provincial town in Italy, in, in very... Also, do you have this adjective in English, bigot? Yeah. So uh, the only way for me to escape was to study university elsewhere. And luckily enough, my hometown doesn't have a university, so you have to go elsewhere. But you can go to Pisa, which is a very prestigious place for university where Galileo is from, etc., but it's only 20 minutes driving. So I knew that if I opted for that place, it wouldn't have meant emancipation from home, etc. But my parents weren't that open. I mean, they will never admit it. They will, they will always deny this. This is a huge conundrum that we have and we will never resolve. But I remember that they were pretty much either you study whatever you want, but you study in Pisa and you live with us. Or if you want to go somewhere else, like Milan, you have to study economics at Bocconi University, which is like one of the most prestigious business school in Italy. And at the time, I didn't even know that behind an equation, there is a line in this, like my knowledge of mathematics was really bad because I studied what is called Liceo Classico. So it's a classical high school in Italy where you study ancient Greek, Latin, philosophy, history, literature, history of art, and only like two hours of math per week. So at the end of the day, it's kind of their fault if I'm in the humanities, because it's if from when you're 14 to when you're 18, 19, you study just, you know, humanities, uh, of course, it's difficult to develop an interest in more scientific subjects. So I said, okay, fine, then I'll just apply for this business school. And I got accepted. I don't know how, possibly, because the admission test was a lot of like scientific stuff. And then I realized that obviously I couldn't care less about economics and finance and business, etc. The only subject that I was interested in within all that field was development economics. And basically, I decided to use this business school as a sort of travel agency. And I was knocking at the door of the International Relations Office every like semester. And I only spent very few months in Milan. And then I did like my exchange program in South America, in Chile. I worked one year in New York. So I was really never in Italy and never in Milan and never really studying economics, really. 
And when I was in Chile, I started development economics and then I did something, I think, uh, kind of illegal in the sense that I studied Latin American literature, which of course for my business school was not going to be converted into any sort of like uh, economics exam because there is no correspondence whatsoever. But I kind of cheated a bit and I said that uh, it was, I studied economic history in Latin America, but it was actually the history of Latin American literature, which made me obsessed and passionate with Latin American literature. And so that experience in Chile was really mind-blowing in the sense that there I realized that what I really wanted to do was to go back to the humanities as soon as possible, no matter what. But then I also fell in love there, so I needed to find an excuse to prolong my stay. And I did an internship at the United Nations, and I was working with this in Chile. Yes, there is the Economic Commission of Latin America and Caribbean. And I was working with this amazing communist economist, Andres Solimano, who was also a friend of Fidel Castro. He used to work at the World Bank. So he was basically like a sort of intermediary between Fidel Castro and the US. So huge, amazing anecdotes and story, like the best boss I've ever had in my life so far. Together, we wrote a paper on economic democracy. So that's when I started academic research. It was not yet in the field of arts and photography or even literature. It was in economics, especially like economic democracy. So like researching Marx, Polyony, and trying to apply it to Latin American countries. But then I also got frustrated because I was like, okay, I'm writing about poverty in Ecuador from a luxury office in Santiago de Chile. This is not exactly what I thought that development economics was going to be. Probably should have started with working for an NGO. But I realized that I loved research. I loved uh, writing. I loved searching for articles, questioning theories, uh, developing new ideas, etc. So I just realized that maybe the subject was not the one that was meant for me. But if I changed subject, then that could be my career. Unfortunately, Italy is quite a rigid university system in the sense that if you studied economics before, if you did a BA in economics, you can't access an, a Master of Science or an MA in literature or arts. You have to restart again with 19 years old people. And at the time I was 24. And so I was like, okay, forget it. So what could be the best compromise between a degree in economics and a passion for arts and, and literature. And then the most logical option was like, okay, a publishing house. A publishing house at the end of the day is a company that publishes books and books are objects in which I can believe and for which I can work. But again, you know, initially if your surname is not Feltrinelli or Einaudi, it's impossible to get a job in a publishing house. So you have to do a master. So I did a master in publishing at the Fondazione Mondadori, 
then thanks to this master, there was another compulsory internship that I did. So I started as an intern and then I spent two years working in this publishing company in Milan called Bruno Mondadori. They used to publish nonfiction books and with a specific focus on art theory, photo theory, and history. So I ended up completely like fascinated. And I was in the publicity department. And so you have to read a book in order to promote it. I mean, at least I was that rigorous. I had loads of colleagues who only read the back of the book. And anyway. Yeah, I was going to say not, not, not everybody, everybody and does that, but you should. Yeah, you should. Uh, but of course, because I preferred those books way more than I was reading them all, only the books that were about art, history and theory and not necessarily the entire catalog of the publishing house. So I also misbehaved. Yeah, so my encounter with photography and art in general was not through artworks, but was through words thanks to those books that I was supposed to promote for the publishing house. And they were translating authors such as Arthur Danto or Rosalind Krauss, Roland Barthes. And after two years, I got impatient because I realized that, yes, even if I could amuse myself, because again, I was a bit rebellious. So even if I was supposed to work in the publicity department, I infiltrated the editorial department as well, pitching books to the editorial director. And we ended up publishing one book that it was kind of like my idea. And she let me follow it as an editor, as a favor kind of thing. Okay, I've got a question yeah. though. You keep saying rebellious and all these different kinds of like like things. When I look at you, uh, you remind me of a, a librarian, and don't mean that in any insulting way. I don't really see you. You don't strike me as the quote unquote like rebellious type because like I picture myself as the rebellious type, but I did it in a sort of very different way. I like got arrested, drugs, all oh, kinds okay. of that kind of rebellious no. stuff. Yeah, like your your term of rebellion is like instead of going to economy school, I'm going to go to a humanity yeah. school. Yeah, so I'm a like, Pollyanna. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a rebellious Pollyanna, basically. I'm a very good girl. I don't do. I never done drugs uh, apart from you know marijuana, um, which probably is not even considered a drug <laughs> for many people. Not not in some countries, <laughs> yes. no. Uh, no, um, yes, of course, uh, rebellious is a very charged uh, word. I was, I was not that kind of uh, rebellious. I was not punk or anything. I was. Yeah. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. Actually, te technically, I was straight, straight edge. My brother, he was five, five or six years older than me, and he was punk. Like literally, Sex Pistols, yeah. Mohawk. I mean, I love stuff, that like, music, and I love the yeah. idea of being one. But I'm pretty honest with myself. It's like, at the end of the day, I am bourgeois as well. So let's face it, you can't escape it. So I prefer to leave uh, the the experience vicariously. Let's say, yeah. 
That is an excellent way. Okay. Now I totally understand that. Now I want to go on to something else though. Like the term in your little bio and everything you seem to be doing, the words photo text is like a prominent part of it. Now I want a sort of a definition of that because to me, there are so many different variations and combinations of photo text. So like, is it just literally anytime there is a photograph with a, an associated text or are there more finite definitions within that? Yeah. Before replying to this question, just because I felt that I started from uh, too far away. So to, to finish very briefly, yeah. Uh, basically. Yeah, bring us to today. I wanted to study something that allowed me to compare photography and literature and didn't really exist. At least in my country, it was just one course at university within an entire degree. Whereas in the UK, specifically at the University College of London, they had an entire master in what it's called comparative literature, where you can take literature and compare it with whatever you want. And so that's how I ended up comparing the two and how I ended up being obsessed with photo texts. Thank you, because otherwise it, it sounds a bit dispersive. So a photo text is basically an object of study, knowledge and art where both the photographic image and the word or words are constitute the artwork. For example, in a, in a photo book, if there is a text and that text happens to be an introduction or a preface or a critical essay by a scholar that is contextualizing the photographer within the more broader history of photography, that's not a photo text. A photo text is when text is part of the artwork. So, for example, Karen Noor, Belgravia from the 80s. And so when the artist happens to also install the body of work in the form of an exhibition, you visit the exhibition and there aren't just images on the walls, but there are also text, either because they invade the photographic surface. So the photo and the text happen to be together in the same frame or because they are handwritten, for example, in the case of Dwayne Michaels, just outside the photograph, but on the mount on the same paper, let's say, or they happen to be separate but next to each other. Martha Rosler, the Bowery into inadequate descriptive systems. So there are multiple graphic solutions for photo text, but a photo text is only really a photo text when text constitutes the artwork for me. All right. I'm sitting here nodding along with you, and I don't know half those names you just mentioned, but I know some others also. So like, I'm going to go with it. Yeah. I mean, I, I the ones that came in my mind were like Barbara Kruger. Yeah. Um, totally. Shit, who's that other one? That you see? Yeah, you said Dwayne Michaels. I mean, even Allen Ginsberg was did some photography yeah. where he also did the captioning underneath yeah. and kind of stuff. So it sounds to me like when you're saying this is basically artwork where the photo and the text uh, cannot be separated, that they are both part of the entire piece. Yeah, but it also works the other way around if you start from literature, for example. So a writer such as Zebold. The Emigrants or Austerlitz of uh, his novels from the 90s 
these are novels where they are conceived to go with photographs. So you don't remove the photographs from the novel. The novel comes with photographs and the photographs are not illustrations. They are literary devices in the novel. In the same way that a character in the novel has a role, the photographs have exactly like a specific role in the novel and you can't the novel doesn't make any sense anymore if you remove them. I get it. Yeah, no, this is, I mean, it's much more clarified because I was also thinking like when you think photo text, it could be the titles of pieces, but they would not be in the piece. And so that would not constitute it for your idea. It was the same thing with like titles of a series or even title of the book. So that text is not what we're talking about when, we're, when you are addressing photo text works. That's a very good question in the sense that uh, the title, it really depends because, for example, if we think about a photo text by Dwayne Michaels. I know those. It's good. Go yeah. Um, especially the one uh, whose title is There Are Things not seen here in this image, something like that. Uh, I don't remember the exact words. And then he hands right, so you have a, a kind of very standard and, and almost kind of empty and, and seemingly boring photograph of the interior of a pub with no human presence, nothing really special is happening in this image. And then he lists all sorts of things that you cannot see in the image because, you know, he was, uh, now I can't remember by heart, but like he was saying, uh, my t-shirt was wet with transpiration. Somebody came to speak with me. It was time to go, blah, blah, blah. So all these, it lists all sorts of things that you cannot see in the image. And then the image title is all the things that you can see in the image. So in that case, it's tricky not to include the title. The title is also part of the narrative. For example, Barbara Kruger, she entitled all or most of her photo texts untitled. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Uh a lot <laughs> people titling art artworks untitled um from a purely pragmatical point of view it's a pain in the neck because as a, an academic that you're about you know you're writing an essay and you need to quote that and at the end of the day you still have to write the bloody text that it's in the image so can you just please title the image with that now i have to double my effort and i have to put untitled and then in brackets the text of the photo text so it's annoying <laughs> i could just imagine an entire academic thing just looking at like barbara kruger's work and just having to say untitled number one versus untitled number 97 versus untitled 362 yeah. it would make no sense whatsoever so like from an academic perspective i totally understand why that would be very annoying yeah, but I quite like that you don't even need to put untitled. You just don't put anything and you just show the image. Wouldn't that be amazing? Like 
it's it is one of those like pet peeves of mine as an artist like people who go into the visual arts generally go in because we're not good writers or whatever kind of things and so like we put all of our effort and our thought and our planning into the creation of the work and then to have to like almost like diminish the expansive idea that the work can express by limiting it to like a context of a title is sometimes very painful because you want the work to mean almost anything to almost anybody, but then you have to sort of focus it down by giving it some context yeah. by a title, which I find a little painful sometimes. Yeah, totally agree with you. But from Play the Devil's Advocate, go ahead, do tell. Titles can also be a kind of like a rescuing shelter in the sense that uh, you have no idea why you made that image, uh, what does it mean to you? And you just come up with a quirky, strange, ambiguous title, and then it's the problem of the viewer to make, you know, to, to, to interpret that. It's not your problem anymore. Oh, yeah. My professors in undergraduate, they hated me because I used text and image together throughout my undergrad and even my grad thesis. I even used image and text combined in the way that you're talking about photo text, but they hated me for it. They were, they kept telling me like, oh, well, but if it was a good photograph, you wouldn't need the text. Like one professor even told me that the text was a crutch that made it that I didn't make better photos that could express everything I needed. So the text was necessary. Thank you for saying this, because this is such a old school and narrow-minded in a way. Yeah, that's the typical commentary uh, that, you know, traditional old school photographers would say about photo text. Now, I have to say, okay, I'm a professor, I teach photography, but I teach like, you know, in photo one, photo two, photo three, sort of, you know, rudimentary kind of photo courses. When I feel like when young artists are making work, they should not rely on text to sort of elevate the works. I do think they should put a more effort into it. I think as artists mature, so let's say after school kind of thing, absolutely feel free to like incorporate text and all that. But I, I feel like to a certain extent, looking back, it probably was a little bit of a crutch for me, you know, to to be able to express a little bit more than necessarily was in the image or that I even could put in the image. So like I as a professor now, in hindsight, I, I give my professors like a little bit of credit. Like, yeah, in school, I think photographers should push themselves a little bit harder and not rely on text to sort of save some images but later in your career, feel free to have fun. Yeah, that, that makes sense. You can always give tasks where they are, where, you know, the use of words is uh, forbidden <laughs> and good luck to them. And they did. Um, but what I am a little bit afraid uh, of is I'm going to say something probably very uh, questionable from the point of view of a photographer, but I have a real problem with the quality, really in terms of like the, the quality, the technical quality of digital images. So for me nowadays, somebody that embarks on the study of photography as a young person, unless uh, they study analog processes first, 
Otherwise, uh, I'm really not even interested in looking at their work because if I have to see iPhone pictures uh, or really badly, I don't know, it just feels so lazy somehow, digital photography. I'm sorry. And there are some amazing artists that, of course, use digital photography. But I mean, can we please acknowledge the zillion of hours that they spend doing post-production? Um, I would have to say I am on your side, but unfortunately in most academic structures these days, they don't have the money or the space to keep a dark room running and all and let, and allow them to really learn all that stuff. And it comes down to, you know, costs and all this kind of stuff as academia generally does. But yeah, I, I'm on your side. I agree. It's a very nostalgic uh, view of mine, probably because I'm biased. I'm, I'm, I've been working, you know, with archives. I love anonymous vintage flea market stuff. It's just the aesthetic of the texture of the image that... I, I yeah. agree 100%. But we are both biased in that way. I, I mean, I grew up being taught in the dark room and then digital sort of came about during my lifetime. So yeah, I'm a huge fan of materials, like the, the actual the papers and inks and ways that things are printed. Like I fetishize over those kinds of things when I make my own work. I've tried out almost every paper on the market, trying to find just that right texture, reflective quality, density of color, all this kind of stuff. Because a lot of people just think like a photo, you just print it on photo paper and it's done. And I'm like, no, like there's so many varieties of ways to express a photographic image. You know, you, even going back to alternative processes, your, you know, your Van Dyke Browns, your cyanotypes, your platinum palladium prints up to the digital stuff. So like there's such a range of the, just the material expression, not even the content of the image itself, but the, the method of material expression that i absolutely love like i fetishize over that to no end yeah 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 i i totally agree with you the problem is that as you said this has become a luxury opportunity for students nowadays to be able to study in places where dark rooms and some processes are just un unconceivable you have to have the budget of chuck clothes perhaps to do a daguerreotype <laughs> of you know kate moss or whatever. oh there are only i think like t like 10 or 12 people in the world doing daguerreotypes because also they're very dangerous i mean you were talking about mercury vapors come on yeah you should not yeah. be doing that with teenagers period <laughs> exactly yes <laughs> okay yeah. but wait so okay you have a you have a dislike of digital imagery so how do you feel about social media because that is like the the penultimate combination of image and text but then i am gonna contradict myself i mean the premise is that i am a very contradictory person and i love and hate a lot of things at the same time it's your librarian rebellion yes i got it <laughs> Uh, but there is a German artist whose name is uh, Ito Steyerl, or Steyerl, probably I'm not pronouncing her surname correctly. And she's also an academic and she writes really cool stuff. And she wrote this essay in praise of the poor image. So this kind of like lumpen, proletarian, low resolution, pixelated image. And I actually love it. So... Paradoxically, 
the poorest, the digital quality, especially if it's intentional and for artistic purposes, I love it. I love memes. They are obnoxious. I know they're viral. They're everywhere, but they are hilarious. And so there is sort of a kitsch in the digital internet environment or artists working with the internet and social media that really appeals to me somehow. Well, I have a similar position, which is basically... I like anything that has a very strong concept and is taken to an extreme. So if you are going to be an analog photographer, shoot Polaroid, like be analog. If you're going to do digital, then like go horrible pixelated, like make things on like a a Fisher Price Pixel 2000 and then translate that magnetic tape into something else. Like go really, really extremely far with that idea conceptually. And I really appreciate those. Like even if the the, the quote unquote like quality and craftsmanship is not there, I love it when people go to extremes. It's all the stuff in the middle. They're like iPhone photos. They're like, yeah, the photo's lovely. The photo's pretty. It's nice. It's good. Those are the things that just are like, meh, like don't care that much. But like if you go to an absolute extreme, I thoroughly respect it and admire it. But everything in the middle is just sort of, Yeah, and also it always depends on what you want to do with photography. What type of photographer do you want to be? You can be a commercial one. If you want to be an artist, you want to be a photojournalist. It's not that everyone has to be an artist. Yes, they do. They do. As far as I'm concerned, they all have to be artists. (laughs) It's just that personally, I'm more intrigued by... Images that even if were not initially conceived as artworks, they acquire that status even after. For example, spirit photographs from the 19th century. I literally was watching a video of you talking about that right before we got on. Go on. Okay. Yeah. I sometimes I have to repeat myself. <laughs> it's a you good know, thing. they they were produced to 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 fool the poor passersby that have probably lost their relatives in the American Civil War and wanted to have like a memento of their lost beloved uh, relative. And so it was a commercial business and nothing to do with art. And then after a century, you see it in an exhibition at the Met in New York, and they all of a sudden become artworks. But also I could use another example, like photo essays. Photo essays were published in mainstream magazines such as Life. And then, you know, the MoMA, for example, in 1965 did this show called The Photo Essay. And they entered the museum space. So I like this evolution that photographs go through, despite their will, in a way. Well, but it's not even just photographs. I mean, I remember going to MoMA in New York and seeing a a history of, like, furniture and home decor design stuff. So, like, you know, utilitarian things have been able to transform themselves beyond their utilitarian purposes into sort of elevated works of art kind of things to be admired so that's not just a photographic thing yeah 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 i mean it was that guy what was his name marcel duchamp yeah. <laughs> who uh put a urinal <laughs> yeah Indeed. 
so yeah, I think after after him, anything is kind of boring. <laughs> but you can, yeah, you can. Oh, I really also love uh, when that happens from the curatorial point of view. So curators that are uh, my big heroes, for example, Massimiliano Gioni or Aral Zeman, they curated exhibitions and at some point probably they felt the need of having an object uh, in the show because it just made sense uh, conceptually and instead of you know looking for an artist that uses that object in their practice they just inserted the object in the show i'll give you a very simple example massimiliano Gioni curated this great show called the great mother in milan it was an homage also to Harold Zeman, who never made it to curate an exhibition on the mother, the concept of the mother in, in, in art. And alongside very famous artworks, uh, for example, sculptures by Louise Bourgeois. Or... At some point you had, I don't know if napkin is the right word, but like the Argentinian grandmothers that they meet every Thursday in the Plaza de Mayo to commemorate the desaparecidos. They always wear this white foulard, I'm going to say, uh, on their head. She's making a gesture like a scarf over your hair. A scarf over your hair. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm doing that because this is an audio podcast and nobody can see your hand gesture. That's all. Thank you. And so Massimiliano Gioni, as the curator of the show, included a framed scarf from a real scarf from one of those grandmothers uh, in the exhibition. Or Harold Zeman commissioned a carpenter to make a torture machine that was inspired by a short story by Kafka. So it didn't exist as an artwork made by an artist, but it made it into an exhibition because the curator thought that it made sense to have that object in the show. So it just commissioned a carpenter to fabricate one. I just love these infiltrations of non-intentionally artistic materials into uh, an art exhibition. Well, and you brought up earlier flea markets and, and these kinds of places. Like, I love going to flea markets and buying old photos of whoever. I don't even know what they're from or where, but I love it. But I always wonder about, like, that. how do you feel about, like, flea market images? Because, like, I bought entire photo albums. I bought glass plate negatives, daguerreotypes. I bought all kinds of stuff at flea markets. And I sort of feel like... In some ways, I, I wanted, I bought them with the intention of like, like going, I'm going to make an art piece utilizing these images in some way. But then they become so precious to me that I'm like, I don't want to destroy them or damage them. And so I, I end up not doing anything with them and be, becoming the steward of them. I just hold on to them for, for posterity because I'm like, these people's history got lost, but I found it and I don't want to destroy it. How sh should we be using those? Yeah, you can scan them and, and digitally manipulate them. No, I could. But then that's that's just a copy. I could, like, then there was no fun in going to the flea market for it. But again, back to materiality. Like There's something about the, the mm -hmm. size, the paper, the, the reflective quality of those prints or, or glass plate negatives or whatever that like once you scan it and do something else with it then quite honestly I could have just downloaded that picture I didn't need to go and buy it yeah yeah that's true I feel that they are disappeared 
in the sense that, I mean, first of all, post-pandemic or during even the pandemic, of course, those were the places that you would probably avoid because if you go there to touch everything, it's not precisely uh, <laughs> very intelligent during a, a pandemic to do such a thing. But also I have the impression, and hopefully I'm wrong, that there are a few artists that got hold of everything that was possibly interesting. And Peter Feldman, Joaquin Schmidt, Ari Kessels, and that, you know, that there is practically almost nothing weird or eccentric left for us normal people to find. Also because from the 90s, 2000s, the prints that you find are not so exciting from an aesthetical point of view. And then we even lost the habit of printing pictures since we have our iPhones. So I think, sadly, it has become a sort of hobby of the past. I haven't been in one for ages, at least three years, which is a shame on me because normally I used to go every week three years ago. There are some great ones in Paris, actually. Yeah, I should try. I should try and go. And My yeah. favorite one that I ever went to in all of Europe was uh, Budapest. Had a magnificent, some guy or girl, I don't know who it was, had an entire like set of stalls. So it wasn't just like one stall. It was like three or four stalls put together of nothing but glass plate negatives tens of thousands of them like i have no idea where they got them and it's just an insane collection i loved it i sat there for like three days yeah then i think that's when text comes back again i think it's a wonderful source of inspiration for writing as well and you can obviously in a fictional way. So if you are that kind of person that wants the truth behind the photograph, forget about it. Overrated. But, uh, I think, yeah, I think uh, writing something in response to them is also something that can be totally done when you find these gems in a flea market. I have always wanted to do a, like an entire, like go through my entire collection and find a whole bunch of ones that sort of look similar and like literally like write an entire family history about these fictitious people that I believe somehow were associated with each other over decades kind of thing for throughout my collection. Never gotten around to it. Maybe that's another project I can work on. <laughs> Do it for the photo captionist, then. <laughs> Excellent segue. So please tell us more about the photo captionist. <laughs> it was a more playful way to deal with my academic research. I needed a break from heavy theoretical essays and the hours I spent reading them. And, uh, I mean, it, it's all written in the website uh, as well but it sounds a bit lunatic but it's actually a true story that i had this weird dream of this uh, old grumpy man whose job title was photo captionist you have the receptionist you have the economist but you also have the racist the sexist so it's this ist suffix that i really uh, enjoy and yeah, and his job was to produce uh, creative texts in response to thousands and thousands of images that he was receiving by artists, museums, random people. And so, yeah, I think it probably looked like a little bit George Bernard show, 
in with the beard and yeah, very, I don't know, very grumpy. And I imagine him like typing in this old type machine. And then I woke up and I was like, okay, that's a very weird dream, but that would be a really cool job. <laughs> and then I stayed with this name and dream for a while. Then I bumped into an old photo album that was completely devoid of prints in a vintage store uh, when I was working for a photography festival in Derby. And I fell in love with the calligraphy because typography is also another big passion of mine. And I realized only after without knowing that my great-grandfather, he was a jewelry engraver and designer, and then he was a self-thought calligraphist as well. And I found albums of his uh, drawings and, and his typographies, and also like a book from 1901, where you can see that he was studying, because on the white pages, he was also taking notes and, and drawing. Um, but this is something that I discovered much after. So it's kind of weird how family history unconsciously like infiltrates your life, even if you're unaware of it. And then, so I commissioned somebody. I Initially, I wanted the designer of the calligraphy of the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> I was very ambitious. And then luckily, the man was busy moving house, so he couldn't do it himself because it was super expensive. And so he put me in touch with one of his students who did it instead of at a much cheaper price. And so for, say, two years, it was a name and a logo in my drawer and in my head. And I didn't really know what to do with it. And then I thought, okay, but then what? how if I create a platform online where you do that, you mix images and words and then you publish them and see what happens. Meanwhile, I was also a freelance curator and it evolved that I had so much work in the physical offline world, let's say, that I didn't have enough time to do the online editorial platform as often as I wanted. So it's totally aperiodic. It's already a miracle if I manage to publish once or twice a year. Everything is super like carefully selected and curated, but it's very aperiodic. It really depends on the when I find the time to do it. But in parallel, it has developed as an offline platform through which I basically sign every project that I do. If it's an exhibition, if it's an article for a magazine, if it's a photo book that I edit. And again, I would need more time to reflect back on the website, all this stuff that we do offline, but it's not, you know, I mean, you have a, a website and you know how painful and hard it is to... Oh, Rubbing salt in the wound for me. All right. Yes, I do. Now, okay. So the, so I guess the question would be, so I know that you are, you do jurying, you do photo reviews, you are a photo captionist, you, and then I believe you also teach as well, right? So like, I guess the thing is I'm sort of get, trying to get a sense of a roundabout, like what are all the different various things you do these days? Apart from making images, I work with images. So yes, I 
organize and curate shows. Of course, as a freelance, it's not as easy as when I used to be in a public institution. You have to fight, you have to pitch, you have to network, and it's painful. But hopefully it's worth it. Let's see how it goes. I was super happy so far. Of course, the pandemic is not really helping because museums have already had to delay their own programming. Imagine the, the shows that are coming from outside. So it's hard times, but hopefully we'll survive. So curating, teaching, writing about photography, writing fiction from photography always because uh, i need uh, to be inspired visually and editing photo text books so helping photographers that make photo text if they want to publish a book and they need an editor sometimes i also help them find a publisher depends I have so many series of books that I'm like, I'm ready to publish. Like that whole process as a, like a practicing photographer of like finding an editor, then finding a publisher, then getting it published. That is so daunting. Cause like you're talking about like being a curator, you have to network and know people and do that to try and get exhibition opportunities. Like same thing with publishing, as far as I'm concerned, it is very hard because that industry of course is not, let's say huge money-making conglomerates anymore so much. I mean, there's, yeah, they're the big ones, they're your Tashins, all these kinds of things. But like outside of that, it's mostly just for lack of a better word, sort of vanity projects to be able to say, I have published this book, here it is kind of thing. But very rarely are people gonna make money money off of their photo books these days not the artists no maybe the publishers as they as they ask the artist to come with money that's something that i find obnoxious yeah to me that's not publishing that's different like that that's basically self-publishing through a publisher yeah, but uh, sadly, that's 89% of the reality as far as I hear. Is, okay, great. I didn't know this. That's what, the way it is? Yes. Okay, yeah. that's... That, that, Unfortunately, yes. That hurts my heart deep down. That's very sad. I know, I know. So I think it's much more noble at the end of the day to self-publish. Of course, the main issue is distribution, which is always a pain in the neck. But perhaps you pay a distributor. And at least if you self-publish, you decide the designer, you decide the paper, you decide everything. It's true. With a publisher, sometimes you're even like, I've heard stories where not only the artist brings the money, but it's not even free or she's not even free to decide how to make her book. Yeah, that to me, that defeats the purpose of it. I mean, the point of making a book, in my mind, is, is that it's basically an extension of your creative process. So like you have your, let's say, your gallery work, your prints that people can buy, but then the book is another sort of interpretation of that work. I mean, I remember when I was young, buying books that like they, I remember some of the, what, Twin Palms used to do with these like matte surfaced books that were, you know, no glossy pages whatsoever. And I just was like, this is magnificent. And why isn't everybody doing this? The choice of the materials to me is is of the utmost importance if you're going to publish a book because it, it again it, to me it's an extension of the idea. 
So yeah, it's a matter of discovering who are still the few virtuous publishers around. Not many, but there are, of course. But It just saddens me that self-publishing has become more prominent and possibly even the smarter way to go. I mean, it's hard because, again, I'm an academia also. Like, So in academia, a self-published book will not pass muster. Like, It won't look good on my CV. <laughs> that sounds so horrible and pompous. Yeah, but yeah, it's true. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, it really depends on why you want to publish a book. Because if you think about the very first uh, books by Christian Boltanski or all the artist books that were made by artists that then became super famous and, you know, impossible to find and, and super expensive. If your aim is you know, immediate prestige and recognition and official academic acknowledgement, then yes. But then I'm, I wonder, is it really the good reason why you should publish a book? Um, and you is not you, you. No, no. I'm, I'm a huge fan of like what I would call like zine quality photo books, like Ed Ruscha's like 76 gas stations and things like this. As much as I love a beautiful, crisp, pristine, you know, monograph, I also thoroughly admire like a handmade, hand stitched or, or stapled, you know, photocopied, whatever. Again, going back to the whole idea of just like, if you're going to do something, push it to its utmost extreme, basically. So if you're going to embrace the low quality, you know, risographs or Xerox copies kind of thing, full on do it. Or if you're going to go the other end, the super high glossy you know coffee table book again embrace that and sort of go that, that full thing and it's those things in the middle that's sort of like yeah again yeah 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 sometimes the you know they can be over designed so it's really tricky to find the right balance between i always think that to make a book is like to make a movie and the colophon should reflect that so you need a photographer you need an editor you need a copy editor, you need a binder, you need a designer, you need proofreader, you, you need all sorts of people. And then of course, the publisher, and it's a teamwork. Yeah, it, sorry, I'm laughing behind my breath. Because like, to me, the first thing that when you said that the colophon should read blah, 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 I was like, well, the first thing is, if somebody wants to publish a book, they should know what a colophon is. <laughs> Yeah, it's like the coda. Of I, the, but I would yeah. imagine a lot of people in the world don't know what it is. So yeah, yeah, I like I I quite like the the word colophon. I don't know. It's a beautiful word. Yeah, no, I my master's thesis was a book, so like I have done books. It's so I know a little bit of the, the verbiage and the vernacular. So it's just funny because I'm like most people in the world don't know what a colophon is. <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I took I, I probably take too much for granted. We all do. I still I speak to my wife. She's not an artist and, and I keep telling her talk using art vocabulary with her and she's like, you know I have no idea what you're talking about. And I'm like, no, actually I didn't know you didn't know what that was. <laughs> so yeah, we all do that. Yeah. She's an accountant and she throws out accounting things at me and I'm just staring at her with this blank expression like I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> All right, but I want to get to, so I yeah. sort of want to finish this up with like a little sort of a so you you've been as I said you've done some jurying work you've done some portfolio reviews so like I guess the question would be for, like for the 
artist or even the curator or you know all the different things you do these days that's like looking to be part of that industry like do you have any sort of things that you seem to run into that people make mistakes uh or and or sort of advice as to what people can try to do sort of now you know so like not the same old same old stuff that's been said for decades but like what are you seeing as things that are happening currently I mean, I have a more optimistic vision and a more pessimistic one. I would love to hear both. So the more pessimistic one is that sometimes, unfortunately, no matter how good your work is, how impeccable you have crafted the artist statement, your portfolio, your application, your whatever, because that year... There is another topic that is trendier for all sorts of politically correctedness that I hate, then that project will be selected and not yours. For example, I find, I'm sorry, I find really annoying the fact that curators and editors after the Black Lives Matter movement, people that had never ever in their lives dealt with those subject matter out of the blue, they improvised themselves experts or they started to put on shows and books. And I find that so disrespectful because it's just like exploiting something that is politically necessary and important, but done by, by the genuine people who already showed way before you know, the hashtag MeToo movement exploded, etc. that they have always been dealing with those subjects, not just out of the blue. The day after, you know, scandals or riots happen, it's, it's a bit too easy in a way. So that was kind of like the most pessimistic view. Well, but you're not alone. I, to a certain extent, I agree with almost everything you just said, because there's also the other stuff with like artists who submit to like, I'm trying to think of like some festivals or grant opportunities or residencies where they have these uh, inherent intentions, like they have a theme kind of thing. And so like, no matter how good you, anybody's work is, like you might make the most magnificent landscapes, but if this the the popular theme of the day is family <laughs> like they're out you know so like it, it, a yeah. lot of making like your career sort of advance is not just necessarily the craftsmanship of the building the portfolio doing the statement blah 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 all that kind of stuff that we all feel we have to do but timing yeah, sometimes it's that. But I also have to say that I've seen artists that were stubborn, dedicated, devoted to their cause uh, and team, and regardless of the evolving trends. And I mean, it took a long time, but it paid at the end because if the work is good, uh, I want to believe that if the work is good, ultimately it will circulate. For all sorts of reasons, uh, to begin with, the ego of the curator who wants to say, oh, I showed this work first. So I think in a way, if you are emerging, if you've never like had a show or published in a magazine, my advice would be to start with those photography festivals around the world. They always have open calls. 
most of them are for free. Hopefully, they, they should be for free. If they're not, then yeah, that's a bit tricky. And when you apply for something, really try to research what are you applying for. Is it an open call for an edition of a festival? What's the theme? Am I really addressing the theme in my artist statement? How can I massage the words to make, you know, at the end of the day, images can be totally manipulated by language. So if you can use language to increase your chances of being included in an open call, then go for it. But of course, ultimately, you have to make incredibly interesting images, explore a topic that is of interest in the notion that everything has already been said, written, read, painted, sculpted. Uh, so it's tough. That's why I never wanted to be an artist. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like, no way. <laughs> I, I prefer the behind the scene. <laughs> My father kept trying to talk me out of being an artist because he's actually a very talented artist himself. And he's actually a priest, but he makes art on the side. But uh, he kept trying to talk me out of it. So you were a punk son of a priest. Yeah. No, my brother was the punk. I was the drug addict. <laughs> okay. But you're lucky dad. <laughs> well, yeah. It, yeah, I mean... The pre preacher's kids are generally one of two things. They're either absolute angels or absolute devils. And in my household, yeah. even with my brother being a punk, I was still the good son as a drug addict. So okay. that's how bad my brother was. <laughs> but my dad always tried to talk me out of it because, you know, he. it's one of those things like when we're young, we think we can buck the system. We can, you, we can make it work. We can figure it all out. And I'll tell you, I'm almost 50 years old, and now I'm sitting here going like, oh, shit, he, he had it all right. He told me all the right things. Like, all my teachers, they said the right things. I was just too young to listen. Mm. No, but also, you know, if you chose that path is because you had something to, to say, to tell the world, otherwise you don't you do something else in oh, life. No, I, yeah. I've met many, many, many people. Like I recently was talking to some people that I went to graduate school with and I mean, so they even got higher degrees, you know, their master's degrees. And then they stopped making art after like five years and moved on and did something else. So it, it's not, you know, having that tenacity to have a, a full lifetime career, it takes a lot of courage and sort of self-belief that like you can't be taught. Yeah. But that's why I think some somehow it's a need, uh, it's a visceral thing that possesses you rather than you possessing the craft. Oh, yeah. I get depressed if I'm not creating something. I, I, I'll give myself three to five days. Like, so if three to five days pass and I haven't like either been in the studio or built something or made something, I get depressed. So like I need to be making something. This podcast does not constitute yeah. one of the things I make, by the way. So, like, need to make something artistic. No, no, no. Of course, of course. Yeah, but it's interesting that you also felt the need to make this podcast as an artist. Well, I decided to make this podcast as a professor 
and as an artist. Because what ha- what okay. happened was, is I, okay, so like here, my little background, I haven't talked about this in a while. I was in America and then I went to the United Arab Emirates and I was teaching there for six years. And then I moved to Europe because my wife is Czech. So we moved to the Czech Republic. I got to Europe and I'm like, oh, great. Okay. I'm going to come down out of my ivory tower of professor and I'll be an artist in Europe. Like how romantic is that kind of thing? And I get here. Nobody fucking cares. Nobody gives a shit about me. And I'm just like, oh, okay. Like, And so I realized basically I thought I knew how the art world worked in America 30 years ago when I sort of started this whole thing. And now yeah. I land in Europe and A, I'm an American, so I'm an expat. And then B, I haven't actually been participating in the art world for decades because I've been an academic. And I realized I don't know how the fuck it works these days, you know, with the fact that like when I started as an artist, the internet barely existed. So social media had not existed, all this kind of stuff. So like there's so many elements and aspects to the arts that I had no idea about that I was just like, okay, if I'm this lost, then I'm sure there are other lost people. And so that's how I got the, the idea of the podcast. Okay. So I'm trying to help lost people find their way through the arts industry. Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult, but I think the important thing is to never, if you get obsessed with fame and showing your work, that's not the right path, but it's, it's like, it's likely that that happens. It's likely that, you know, you see colleagues or other people having opportunities and and showing their work. The secret is really to forget competition. It's ambition is good. Competition, I don't think is that good. Totally agree. I've always been of the opinion that like, well, okay, in the photography industry, so I'll take you to like our, our, what we sort of know a little bit about, that I found that photographers are some of the most competitive, creative people. Oh, yeah. Don't get me started. I don't really like photographers. Me neither. <laughs> I live in a sort of death of the author mode. I like images regardless of its author, for fuck's sake. I, I totally <laughs> agree. I, I'm, I have almost no photographer friends uh, as a general whole. I have lots of sculptor, painter, printmaker friends, but very few photographers because they're super competitive and they, they have this sense of like keeping secrets. Like, oh, I've got my little artistic technique that I don't want to share with you. And I'm like, that competition I feel like is a detriment to that industry. I think if the industry could have been progressed a lot faster and a lot better and a lot healthier had that competition not been there. And so decades ago, I should make the choice, the conscious choice. I said, I am not going to compete with all these people. I, I will do something else. So I always sort of like, I'm always out on the edges or on the fringe of the the photo world, but I'm never in the middle of it. But why do you think it's specific for photography? Isn't it? Actually, I'm I'm thinking it's, it's just human beings in every field. No, I really think it's photographers. (laughs) There's... Probably, They're yeah. so bad. Well, because like I know painters and like my painter friends, they'll sit there and share techniques, they'll share paints, they'll share brushes, they'll they'll share all their stuff. Probably because photography is a it's a sort of a fake art. <laughs> we used to joke in school that like photography was for impatient oh. artists. Oh. 
Yeah. You know, like a painting would take three yeah. to six months, but a photograph you're done in, you know, a fraction of a second. There you go. Moving on. Next thing. Yeah. Yeah. So horrible. But yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah, the competitiveness is, is, is a, a big pet peeve of mine. Like there used to be like a lot of people have secrets like, oh, this is, I can't tell you how I did this kind of bullshit. I fucking hate that stuff. Yeah, no. And the, and the, the secret is, uh, to remove all these negative vibes from your life and just uh, continue to get inspiration from going to see exhibitions, reading literature, watching movies, I don't know, spending time in nature with animals, uh, whatever. Just elevate yourself, illuminate yourself and, uh, and nurture. In a way, you have to nurture your practice as you nurture your body. So as a researcher, I mean, I'm not an artist, so I can try, but it's, I will never know ultimately the best advice for artists because I'm not one, because I always knew that I didn't want to be an artist and I wanted to be the behind the scene person that facilitates artists to express themselves. If a writer is considered an artist, yes, and it, I mean, it is. That's probably the only art that I could see myself associated with, but like not the, the visual arts. But I think that nurturing your practice is probably the most important thing. So if you are doing an artwork on a specific subject, get, you know, the full immersion into that subject, like try to find out what has already been made about it, said about it, written about it, filmed about it, like really expand beyond your discipline, beyond your medium, eviscerate the topic, then go away into nature, forget about everything, and then go to the studio and, I don't know, maybe like do a little Osho meditation and then explode and liberate your energies into your work. That's probably what I would do if I was an artist. Is that your optimistic side that you you just expressed? Yeah. 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 Because of course you have to have a studio, you have to have time, you have to have money. And and that so. is my triad that I have been like spouting since the beginning of this. I believe that what artists desire most in their life is time, space, and money. If we can have those three, then we're very happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the same way as um, Virginia Woolf, uh, yeah, as, as Virginia Woolf wrote in that amazing essay, uh, A Room of One's Own, that a woman needs a room of one's own to be a writer. Yes, with a very strong door. <laughs> All right. Thank you for your time and our conversation and uh, good luck. Before you go, we would like to thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation. We also would appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, families, co-workers, and even studio mates. Anyone with an interest in the arts and creative industries. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community both today and in the future is at the core mission of this podcast. They can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, 
The audio was edited by Kush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.